welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, you may have been noticing over the years, recent years, perhaps the last decade or so, that um, people are getting much more involved with cases that are going on, um, you know, between social media and um, uh, and regular media. Everybody seems to get more interested, closer to the defendants and to the uh, um you know, to all of the, the 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 witnesses and so on, all the elements of crimes, especially murder. And um, you know, perhaps you have asked yourself. I certainly have asked myself how this is affecting uh, the juries. Surely, mobs outside the courtrooms, for example, or the courthouse, um, that juries have to jurors have to pass each day to get into the uh, courtroom and so on have to have an effect, you know, with their placards and all that, have to have an effect. And so today, um, today's show is called, Can Innocent Until Proven Guilty Survive in Our Age of Judgment? So the question is, can we still get justice in a world where guilt or innocent is decided, innocence is decided in the court of public opinion before the actual courtroom trial has even begun? And to talk about this, my guest is Doug Bremner. He is a psychiatrist, an MD, a researcher, writer, and professor of Emory at Emory University in Atlanta. Dr. Bremner is a world leader in research in the field of PTSD and memory, including studies related to false memories with relevance to coerced testimony. He served as an expert witness in litigation related to PTSD and drug safety and has appeared on CNN as an expert analyst. Um, the book that he is a co-author of, along with his sister, um, is called um, Justice in the Age of Judgment, From Amanda Knox to Kyle Rittenhouse and the Battle for Due Process in the Digital Age. Uh, a lot of words basically that get down to the issue of can people get fair trials anymore? And we're going to, the book looks at, and we're going to be talking about lots of famous trials, um, you know, that I'm sure you have uh, seen in the news from Amanda Knox to OJ Simpson, Derek Chauvin, Kyle Rittenhouse, Casey Anthony, Michael Jackson, and many more. And uh, welcome to the show, Doug. Thanks for having me, Carol. Uh, let's start with, before we get into the meat of the book and the meat of this issue, let's start with, you know, first of all, um, as I was saying before we got on the air, I'm really excited to talk about you because that's what I do. That's my day job, being a forensic psychiatrist and expert witness. I've been doing it for over 20 years. And um, so it'll be fun to talk with another forensic psychiatrist. <laughs> I also am an analyst on TV. Um, of and me and radio and media in general about cases and crimes. So we we basically do the same thing. So it'll be fun to talk with you. Now, tell tell us about tell my listeners how um, first of all how you 
wound up being a forensic psychiatrist. What drove you to that? Because I always get asked that. And then uh, how you got to um, writing this book with your sister. Well, thanks again for having me, Carol. Um, I've done a lot of forensic psychiatry. I'm, I'm not board certified in forensic psychiatry, just to, to clarify, but because of the research I've done in both in post-traumatic stress disorder and in um, uh, pharmaceutical safety uh, uh, and um, also some areas like mild traumatic brain injury, I have testified in a number of cases and you know I tell people that I may have spent more time in a courtroom than many, many attorneys. Hmm. Um, and originally that started out with some of the research we were doing on the effects of trauma, early trauma and trauma in general on the brain, showing smaller hippocampal volume and uh, on, on magnetic resonance imaging. And then we did a, a study on, of a, a drug for acne called Accutane that um, we did a brain imaging study showing that it affected a part of the brain involved in depression. And so based on that, I became the primary expert witness for multi-district litigation. So I got a lot of experience in the courtroom that way. Uh, but also my sister is uh, um, was a, is a lawyer. She goes on Core TV quite a bit and CNN. I used Nancy Grace. I used to go on Nancy Grace quite a bit as well until I gave an opinion that I think Nancy didn't like. That's so interesting. <laughs> that happened to me. <laughs> so interesting. Both on her television um, show, I used to do that quite a lot, and her radio show. But yeah. she doesn't like anybody to voice an opinion that is different from right, hers. Right. Well, she she got upset because uh, with the top mom Casey Anthony case, mm -hmm. um, I said that I thought that the father was George was was like a pedophile, and she really liked George, so she didn't like that. Oh, that's interesting. So that was the end of my TV career. <laughs> I used to enjoy it because you know when you go on TV, it's sort of like you know it's like they tell the people at Starbucks, you know, the baristas smile, you know, when you greet the customer. And then when you, when you smile, you actually feel happier, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of a, like, it's all positivity going on the Nancy Grace show until you say something. <laughs> she doesn't like. yes. She's probably not going to listen to this broadcast. I bet, but <laughs> so we can say what we want. <laughs> well, we can say what we want anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But she, my sister's friends with, with Nancy. And so she's, been on there quite a bit and she's done a lot of crime and was it the crime and law network and um court tv etc yeah, um fine. yeah so i did have my kind of that was back when i had a you know one of my earlier books came out called before you take that pill why the drug industry may be bad for your health and that directly stemmed out of my experience as an expert witness in pharmaceutical litigation because i was seeing a lot of the the ways that the pharmaceutical companies were not always emphasizing the risks and they were overemphasizing the benefits of medications. And I got to kind of peel back the onion a little bit and look behind the curtain with the discovery, as you know, um, when there's a, a litigation, in this case, it was a litigation of the families of people who killed themselves taking this, this medication. Um, you see kind of the inner workings of how they're doing their public relations and sort of trying to cover over, you know, some of the negative aspects of their medication, all with the goal of pursuing the bottom line of making as much money during the 15 years that they have a drug on the market. So, so that was sort of the, the basis of that book. And then in the aftermath, 
you know, the editor was Penguin, told me to get out there and blog and go on social media. So I was doing a lot on Nancy Grace, mainly when, you know, for instance, someone with schizophrenia committed murder, you know, those kinds of cases, or mm-hmm. or maybe someone had a bad side effect of a medication that made them do something criminal or illegal or, or overdose, you know, Hollywood actors and actresses who were overdosing on combinations of medications. That was another thing I was writing about. But, yeah. um, you know, since then, I, you know, I wrote another book about my experience as an expert witness called The Goose Lay the Golden Egg. Mm. Um, that was about eight years ago. But this is, this book is, is new. You know, it's kind of the first, you know, more made, you know, I've written some other books about trauma for my patients and whatnot called like, uh, you can't just snap out of it. But this is the first one that came from a major publisher again. It was with Skyhorse and Simon and & Schuster. Mm-hmm. And it started out with my sister with, um, actually it's kind of a funny story that they, they got a blurb from my sister for the back of, of, uh, um, of a book that Skyhorse published and they, they spelled her name wrong. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so then she complained and then they said, why don't you come out to New York and meet with me with us? So she met with the editor of Skyhorse and they said, why don't you write a book about the Meredith Knox case? Cause she was kind of the American representative for the Knox family. And so she started writing that she had a, a writer that she hired. She wasn't happy with it. And so my father said, well, Doug wrote books. Why don't you ask him to help you? So that's how I got involved. But I'd already been pretty obsessed with the Metanox case because my wife is Italian and I've been translating what they call the motivazione, the, the, the reasoning behind judges' opinions that the Italian courts produce. Uh, that's that's fascinating. Well, before we get into that, though, um, I, I you you piqued my interest with the goose that laid the golden egg. What was that about? That was um, that was a, a narrative nonfiction about my experience as an expert witness. Yes, but like, and what? and it but it sort of emphasized kind of more of the personal, like how it affected me personally. I, I include in there information about, you know, the facts about the cases and facts about the drug and, and, and et cetera. But it's more of a story about, you know, I was deposed 18 times and each time it was eight hours apiece. And that was, that was really stressful. Yes. Yeah. And I had kind of, kind of a midlife crisis, nervous breakdown. So I write about that in pretty, pretty um, explicit detail. But then there's also a lot about, you know, you may be interested. One of the lawyers was Paul Smith, who was a lead counsel for the Westpecker trot case, which was the only case that ever settled with the Prozac and the effects of Prozac on suicide and, and violent behavior. Uh-huh. And well, there's several books written about that case as well. Maybe I'll, you'll have to come back and talk about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's start with... Um, so let's get into um, the the current book. Yeah. So it it's uh, you know it started out with with Anne writing about it, kind of a biography, and then then uh, when I got involved, I was I said, well, why don't we make it about um, you know kind of what's the theme that runs through this? What 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 goes beyond just the Madden Knox case and. And so what we concluded is that Amanda Knox was really the first internet trial case, the first 
case that really played out as much in, on blogs and forums and, and the internet and, and tabloid newspapers as it did, you know, in the courtroom. And that was because people were creating forums that were either believed she was guilty or felt that she was innocent. They even had them. We, we called the guilt people, the guilters. And, and it was, it was, uh, and you see that play out in many other cases, like West Memphis three is just an example. Or uh, this case with the, the I can't remember the name of the hotel, but there is this hotel in Los Angeles where the woman was bipolar and she ended up in a water tower um, dead. Yeah. The Carlton, was the Carlton Hotel? Or Maybe. The, I remember the case. Yeah. So so you have internet sleuths, and you know, I was one of them, going on there trying to figure out, you know, facts about the case. In my case, it was translating these motivazioni originally. And then trying to go and, and put them onto one of these guilt-focused websites, and they wouldn't let me register an account. And then I realized it was because, you know, they realized that I was the brother of the attorney representing her and saw me as one of the, the enemy. Uh -huh. um, and I had written this, read this book called Angel Face. It was written by a journalist named Barbie Nadeau. And it was very, I realized it was very kind of biased, you know, against Amanda Knox and and um, you know we subsequently had a couple of panels at the International Academy of Law and Mental Health, one in Prague and the other in Rome. Huh. And the one in Rome, we also had uh, Raffaele Selecito, who was the boyfriend. Uh huh. Um, that was interesting. You know, I followed that case very closely. I mean, obviously not as closely as you and your sister, <laughs> but because I went to medical school at the University of Louvain in Belgium. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so you know, I, I sort of related to her, like what it's like to be an American uh, in a foreign country and going to school there, and and so on. And, um, and so you know, I, I must admit that I wasn't so sure about her innocence. After, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, well, 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 why don't you walk us through it? I mean. How, okay, how did your sister, like, how did your sister decide that she really was, in it? I mean, how, you know, there was the Guido guy, right? <laughs> what was his name? Oh, the uh, Giuliano Mignini, you mean the prosecutor? No, no, the uh, the, the man who was found guilty and who spent time in jail. Oh, yeah, that, that was uh, uh, Pat, um, Patrick, or what, what was it, Guede, Rudy Guede. Yes, yes, right. yes. Um, and... I know that, you know, so they, they, they found him guilty, but um, it seemed like, like that he, like, like, do, did you or do your, did your sister believe that he did it alone? Yeah. And the Italians always had this idea that he couldn't have possibly done it alone, but men kill women by themselves all the time. So I'm not sure why they had that fixated idea. And in fact, in the end, they, she was finally tried three times and, not only found not guilty, but she was exonerated because the Italians have this category of actual innocence, which we don't have. You know, their their court system okay. is Napoleonic law. It's completely different than English-based um, common law. And but then they still said that 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 they 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 kind of penalized Raffaele for contempt of court for not saying that he was in their room when she was killed. And he said, "I'm not going to lie," you know. And and they actually they they. Normally, they would pay in Italy. They pay you for the time you spent in jail because they don't have bail. But then they denied that because they said that he was in contempt for not admitting that he was there at the time of the murder, which he wasn't. 
So he's like, I'm not going to admit to something that's untrue. Well, who the prosecutors wanted him to admit it. Yeah. And and the fact is that what happened is that is that um, Rudy Guede knew kind of vaguely knew the boyfriend of the murder victim, Meredith Kirscher, who was English. And he kind of, you know, probably liked her or something. And then he knew where they lived. And so he he was a breaking artist. He'd already been arrested for breaking in. And his M.O. was to to climb up to second floor windows, break the window and then and then go in. So probably what happened, it was that he broke and entered. And then she came home and then it was sort of a crime of, you know, she caught him, knew him, you know, could recognize him. And then he, he, you know, raped and killed her. Yeah. I felt he had to kill her. Yeah. And raped her. Right. Uh, Huh? Yeah. So, but then there's all these kind of internet rumors and stories like that the breaking was staged. There was never any reason to believe that it was staged. I mean, all the engineers that looked at the, pattern of the glass you know and they're saying well they they obviously threw clothes on the ground and then put glass on top of that to make it look like there's a uh-huh. stage of breaking but i mean it like these are like 20 year old girls i mean if you've had 20 year olds you know that live at home you know that they leave their clothes on the floor all the time I mean, that's just <laughs> the way they are so to say that 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 was stage was ridiculous and then well, wait, you know, I'm were, sorry to interrupt you, but we I we we have a one minute uh uh time until break. So let's let's leave this on a cliffhanger and continue okay. when we come back. Okay. Um my guest today is Doug Bremner, Dr. Doug Bremner. We're talking today about can innocent until proven guilty survive in our age of judgment. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch, where we're talking today about can innocence until proven guilty survive in our age of judgment. My guest is Doug Bremner. He's the co-author of a book, a new bestseller called Justice in the Age of Judgment, from Amanda Knox to Kyle Rittenhouse and the Battle for Due Process in the Digital Age. Um, we were talking about Amanda Knox, and um, you know, maybe we we sh- I, I was asking you uh, off air about what happened to both of them, and I know they were in the news just recently. Um, that reuniting in Italy, I I had this. Uh, I I thought there might be a happily ever as happily ever after ending, uh, where they would both get back together and, and uh, walk walk into the sunset. I mean, I know. Uh, well, I don't know. Is Amanda is Amanda still married? Yeah, she's married and she has a baby, and I don't think that her and Raffaele are going to hook up anytime soon. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think that Raffaele probably considers that to be one of his more unfortunate relationships. <laughs> is he married? No, no, he's not. He he he's interesting. So we we you know we had this uh, panel with him. And my my so my wife is Italian, and we actually have a farm in Tuscany now. Oh wow! And both of my kids have lived in Italy. Actually, my son now lives in Naples hmm. in Sicily with his um, with his family. But when we were there, we. we we had my daughter Sabina there and she translated this statement that Raffaele wrote where he basically said he explained why he had been found in contempt of court and why he was not going to admit to this thing that wasn't true, that mm-hmm. he was in the room at the time that Meredith Kirscher was killed by Rudy Guede because, you know, there is his bloody fingerprints everywhere and DNA inside the body on the, on the clothes, everything. And that is speck of, of DNA blood from either Amanda or Raffaele. What they had is they had this like a bra clasp and then this knife and they the police went to Raffaele's apartment and they grabbed the first steak knife out of the drawer and then the bra clasp they they thought they had a matched footprint which turned out to not be true. So then they went back six weeks later, found this bra clasp that had been kicked around on the floor for the past six weeks, picked it up and then ran a DNA analysis where they dialed up the the sense of detection way above what is allowed hmm. to and basically measured a contamination. And so in the end, what happened is that these DNA experts, Italian experts from La Sapienza, which is the university in Rome, uh, came in and looked at the evidence. And they said, this is just contamination. There's no evidence here. They were trying to say that it was that it was her um, prints on the bra. Yeah. So they, they said like that, that, that with the knife, they, they had the, um, you know, the DNA of Amanda on the handle and then the blood of of um, uh, of Meredith Kirscher, the victim on the on the blade. But it wasn't in, in the end, they, they determined it wasn't even evidence that it was really blood. It was just like, you know, they, they just discredited it. And then the broadcast was they said that they had Raffaele's DNA on the broadcast. But then these outside experts said, no, th- this is this this wasn't collected properly. It's probably contamination. Mm. And um and it was this this woman, Patrizia Stefanoni, was this 
kind of a lab tech, not really even an expert who is, this is in Perugia, you know, they don't have a lot of high profile criminal cases there, I think. And, and it was just, uh, you know, Minini walked in there and he, he made up his mind that they were involved in the murder. He had these weird ideas about satanic cults and that they committed this satanic ritual sacrifice. And, you know, a lot of people, like 30% of Americans believe in UFOs. Well, in Italy, it's like 30% believe that the, the Masons are conducting the satanic cults. So, you know, it's sort of this belief that, you know, one of those weird beliefs that a lot of people have. But, it, it, you know, there there was no evidence that they were involved in any crime. None. Zero. And so some of this stuff was just made up. So do you think, um, yeah, I remember that about the bra and the, and the knife. Um, but do you think... I mean, so why were they so determined to prosecute um, the two of them, especially when they when they had Guide, um, that they already, you know, found guilty? Yeah, well, they, I mean, it was a, it was a case of a prosecutor run off the rails. And that's how my sister got involved. The, Knox's family had gotten hold of these videotapes of the of the the way that the police collected evidence and. You know, the fact that they weren't, you know, they weren't gowning and gloving properly. At one point, someone sort of crashed through a window for some unexplained reason that they were picking stuff up and dropping it. They were talking on their cell phones as they were collecting evidence. Um, you know, it was a, just a complete disaster. And so she, when she saw those videos, she said, well, we need to get these videos out, you know, in the, into the press. And so that's what they did. And, and they, you know, they were able to kind of slowly turn this super tanker of public opinion around um you know initially the english tabloids would publish a, a picture of a sink that was covered with this substance called luminol right uh, um which is to that to that blood but the way they presented it, it was like that the sink was completely covered in blood but it was just this chemical it wasn't blood uh-huh. you know yeah. and and then they said well how could you just walk past this bloody sink and take a shower and not think that anything was wrong yeah and so that was totally misleading they said that they that they had bought bleach to clean up the crime scene, which was total a lie. When they finally got the receipt, it was for pizza. There are all <laughs> kinds of things like that, you know. So, um, and, and then you know she was kind of doing these stretching exercises, and people thought that looked weird. So they sort of looked at her and said, "Well, she's acting strange for someone, you know, who, who's innocent of a crime." And and um, so, and then it was so it was just a, it, but really what it boils down to is a, the prosecutor went off the rails. And so in order to show this wasn't unique to Italy, we talked about other cases where a prosecutor went off the rails. Mike Nifong in the Duke lacrosse case had 16 press conferences before he interviewed the alleged victim. Mm-hmm. That turned out to be totally fabricated. You know, the, the, the boys had not sexually assaulted this woman. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the West Memphis Three were a similar case where the prosecutor came up with this theory that these three teenagers were involved in a satanic cult just because they liked to listen to heavy metal rock music. And they were convicted and put in jail for 20 years with no evidence. And and that information was leaked to the press, which prejudiced the jury in their case. And then there was another false confession where they had, um, you know, kept his kid awake for 10 hours and then he implicated the other kids and then like a metanox later retracted but as you know may know that 25 percent of um exonerees are found to have made a false confession so so when they're exonerated based on dna 25 percent of the time there's a false confession involved Uh well you know um well yes i know that the british uh 
the British tabloids, especially in all the British papers were, um, you know, they, of course they were on the side of uh, the, the British girl who was killed um, mm-hmm. and they were demonizing um, Amanda Knox. And, so and then there were, I remember seeing video on the news about uh, like Amanda and Raphael in some store where they were buying uh, lingerie or something or other. Well, that, that was actually also found not to be true. Um, I can't remember the exact details of it, but it was, they did go into a store to buy, I think maybe some underwear because she got locked out of her apartment, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> she didn't have anything to wear because it was a crime scene. <laughs> Well, you know, all of that looked very salacious, you know. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. I, I yes. wonder if Raphael is going to ever is going to ever have another relationship or ever get married after what happened in you know with Amanda. Um, I one of well, my it's, books- it's interesting, you know, all these women were like writing to him on the internet, and he said said once they figured out that he probably wasn't a murderer, some of them like lost interest in him. <laughs> interesting, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, let's, um, why don't we also talk about some of these other cases that you talk about in the, in the book? I mean, in general, um, the book, I mean, I, I presume that you make the point about how, well, I shouldn't presume anything. Tell, what is the main p- focus of the book? And then we can talk about the individual, some of the other cases that you use to uh, illustrate this. So as I got involved in, you know, not having Italian family, not wanting it to be all about how the American judicial system is better than other countries' judicial systems. I got more involved in in learning about Italian law and talking to my wife's cousins who are lawyers in Italy um, and trying to figure out more of the details of exactly how they came to the decisions that they did. And um, and trying to find other cases in the U.S. where something similar had happened, where a prosecutor got off the rails, and so that so and then we said, well, what, what's the thread? So then we brought in the West Memphis three and the Duke Lacrosse case and kind of expanded those. And then as we were writing, this went on for three years because I got involved later. And then the 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 George Floyd, Kyle Rittenhouse, and Ahmad Arbery cases came along. And so we said, well, what are the relevance of these to what you know what we're writing about with Amanda Knox, et cetera? And and we tried to find a common thread. And the common thread was about how the media, social media, and journalistic media can come up with instant judgments and biases and misinformation that, and and what the degree is to which it can affect cases. And so I think that that the conclusion is that that there is the potential to affect cases. Sometimes it didn't affect cases as much as we might have thought, but it's something that, that needs to be paid attention to. And sometimes attorneys like my sister need to get out in front of the cameras and take a public stance and really try and move the narrative in the direction of their clients. And other times, you know, they, they may be advantageous not to. So that that was so we write about that and then we write about the role of confirmation bias, which is the tendency of people to see the first post they see on Facebook or on Twitter and come to a conclusion, you know, that person looked guilty to me, you know, mm-hmm. we even have people in our own family saying, well, she just looks guilty, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then, and then when we analyze some of these other cases, uh, you know, like the OJ Simpson case where his attorney set out to shape the public perception of the case. 
and make it all about make it about racism but that was for the purpose of of not advocating a social cause but for getting finding you know a not guilty verdict for their client who was oj simpson so he had the dream team you know, he had like you know four or five lawyers and they they kind of helped create this article in new york magazine called an incendiary defense that it was that this was sort of a, a racial persecution of mm-hmm. oj simpson and then they had this this recording of him using the n-word and they got him up there and said have you ever used the n-word and he mm-hmm. said no then they played back the recording and i think what they did is they they had set up this thing that it was racially bought that the Furman mark Furman, the um the detective was a racist and then they they kind of planted that idea in the in the minds of the jury then they had this other evidence that corroborated that so they introduced a reasonable doubt in the minds of the jury that maybe he was a racist and maybe he did plant the the glove mm-hmm. in oj's house and so you know i do i think he was innocent no was the jury totally wrong in what they did no i don't think so because you know the and then the uh, the prosecution kind of flubbed it by you know they had him put on this glove which had been bloody and so it shrank yeah, and so then yeah. he couldn't put it on and so then uh um, johnny cochran said if if it the glove doesn't fit you must acquit right right yes that was a big mistake <laughs> yeah. it went downhill yeah. from there <laughs> yeah and then the same with the michael jackson trial you know the prosecutor just was overconfident in his case he didn't have all his ducks in a row he didn't have you know the, the his witnesses were people that looked like you know they were kind of fraudulent or trying to take advantage of michael jackson or get money out of him and so the jury you know they introduced reasonable doubt doubt that you know and then what happened later is that they made a documentary where some of the kids came back and said actually he did molest me yes (laughs) i was actually the one that caused that case if you can believe that oh how's that I, i don't know if you knew that um because um because I um trying to remember which came first um well I I had watched the um the documentary about Michael Jackson um where the where he was with Gavin um the the child um you know who he was accused of molesting um and I wrote a, uh, I did a press conference. I wrote a, I had written to them before that, though, about this, that I thought that he was molesting um, Gavin. And then when the documentary came out, I wrote a, uh, I wrote up something that um, had 18 reasons why Michael Jackson's children should be taken away and um, <laughs> protected from him mm-hmm. until he got therapy, <laughs> you know, to mm-hmm. uh, stop him from, from being a pedophile. And anyhow, all of these these things, so, and I held a press conference in front of uh, Child Protective Services in Los Angeles, and mm-hmm. there was a ton of media there, and so on. And um, and what was his name? The share the the sheriff who what was I'm sure you'll know. Was it the sheriff in Santa Barbara? Um, I mean, the prosecutor. Is that what, you're the pro- of? No, what was the well? What was the prosecutor's name? I don't remember. Um, well, I, I don't remember. It was either the, or the D, yeah, the DA. Um, yeah, the DA. Yeah. Sneddon, Sneddon, Tom Sneddon. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, Michael wrote a song about him that was Tom, Tom Sneddon is a cold man. 
<laughs> he was actually um, anyhow, and I had kept I kept sending um, these letters to him you know telling him about uh, and then it, it really didn't get attention until I held the press conference and then there was all this media you know paying attention to him why aren't you investigating because he gave the excuse that um, they tried to they tried to go to Michael Jackson's house to deliver a summons or deliver something, a subpoena or something or other. And, um, and they couldn't get in because he had a gate, you know, his big, uh, his big mansion, right? Never, ne- <laughs> Neverland. Um, so they, they, they used as the excuse for why they never subpoenaed him or did anything more. The fact that, well, he had a gate. Now, if, if they had had, if this was the same kind of story, but it was, um, for a man in Watts or something, you know, or someone living in a tenement or whatever, you know, they would have just knocked the door down. So it was just excuses. But then, of course, then they, you know, it was great that they had the case, but they really they had this horrible expert. Did you pay attention to who the psychiatrist was? Um, the expert witness? I don't remember his name, but I just remember that he was awful. And um, and so Michael was acquitted. I was at that trial too. Um, I didn't testify, but I was I was there to see it and to and to report about it for the media. But um, we're it, and and your sister wasn't. She was just involved also as like a reporter for the media. She was right? there like a reporter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was very interesting. And and at one point, I locked eyes with Michael. He when it was the the session was over for that day. And so he turned around and I was staring at him and he turned around, and he stared at me and it was like, if looks could kill because he knew what, you know, what role I had had in this. Mm-hmm. Well, we have to have another break. Um, when we come back, we'll talk about some more of the cases and some more of uh, how the um, both social media and regular media may have influenced um, the jury and so on. Like, for example, the George Floyd trial. So my guest um, today is uh, Dr. Doug Bremner. We're talking about uh, innocence. Can innocent until proven guilty survive in our age of judgment? And we will be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com 
Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about, well, actually, we're talking about can innocent until proven guilty survive, but we're also talking with my guest, who is the co-author of this book, um, it is Justice in the Age of Judgment, from Amanda Knox to Kyle Rittenhouse and the Battle for Due Process in the Di- Digital Age. Um, before the break, we were talking about Michael Jackson, and I was saying off air that um, I felt really uh, bad about um, how Michael deteriorated after that trial, even though he was acquitted. But um, the stress, I mean, each day he... He came and looked uh, more and more fragile, you know, as the trial was going going on. It was like uh, it was like he was getting thinner and there was less of him. And he was just, um, you know, which is sad. But as I was saying to um, Doug, uh, it was good that it, I would like to believe that more children, at least some children were saved Um from from further from further abuse further sexual abuse um after that at least if probably not all children were saved but there were presumably fewer victims of his sexual abuse um you were you were talking you were mentioning about the witnesses uh they weren't the the witnesses against michael were very bad i was i was mentioning the expert witness psychiatrist was horrible um the uh gavin's mother was mm-hmm. a bad witness because right. <laughs> um, he looked like this bluesy who um who wasn't telling the truth and and you know i mean the whole question was well why did you let your son spend so much time with him and you mm-hmm. know she was getting all this money and as as other victims uh parents did you know that uh, they they really sort of knew they had to have known but uh, but they were there was a there were perks in letting their children be Michael's pet, <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, so that was really sad. She did not uh, help the case. Well, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about one of the things that um, bothered me was the George Floyd case because every day there were mobs of people outside, you know threatening mobs <laughs> um outside the courthouse uh who wanted you know if they could get death um for the policemen um they would have 
D- Derek Chauvin, um, they would have voted for death. And, you know, they had to have an impact on the jurors walking in and out of the courthouse every day. What did you write about that? What, what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, so we we uh, uh, we wrote about George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery and Kyle Rittenhouse. And, you know, what are the similarities and differences between those cases that what ties them all together is that that they all revolved around the cell phone video and what's new is that 20 years ago we didn't have video cameras on our phones that's only been the past 10 12 years where everybody now has a video on their phone so whenever a crime is committed they can pull out the phone and film it right away and so that video of Derek Chauvin kneeling on on the neck for for 11 minutes or more um, immediately went viral and it people formed an instant judgment in their mind, you know, for, for good or for ill. And that's one of the points of the book is that, that people tend to, to make an instant judgment. And once they've made that judgment, it's almost impossible to change. So one of the, one of the little factoids that we throw out there is that, that 80% of jurors will make up their mind after the opening statement. So, and then after, even though they're supposed to wait until all the actual evidence is presented, that is going to back up the opening statement. So, in the case of Derek Chauvin, that was actually like a you know the the knee hold was was at the time an approved approved procedure from the Minneapolis Police Department. However, I mean where he erred is that that is an error of judgment and and using it for such a long period of time, especially after he was non-responsive. But everybody that that was involved in that case, all the policemen that were there you know, we're, we're prosecuted as well, you know, regardless of the degree to which, you know, they had an involvement in the case. So, and, and, and there was this judgment which occurred before it even went to trial. And so it really raised the question of whether there's even a possibility of a, of a fair trial because who was not exposed to all that, right? Um, you know, so, so that that's sort of the concern and then but in the case of Kyle Rittenhouse that was another one where people jumped to immediate conclusions and that was based on whether or not you're an advocate for gun rights so the the non-gun right people you know assumed he was a vigilante and then the gun right people said he's just you know he's acting within you know his bounds but the the truth is that you know I don't think it's a great idea for 18 year olds who walk down the street with an AK15 assault rifle but in Wisconsin at the time, it was legal to do that. So, and then he was, um, you know, he he was actually found by the jury to be acting in, in self-defense because these other two guys sort of tried to jump him first and try and pull the gun away. Um, so they had they had initiated the 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 conflict. Whereas in the case of Ahmad Arbery, it was just a nine one one call comes in and and um travis mcmichael says there's a black male running down the street and they say well did he commit a crime and then he says there he goes again he's running down the street you know so they they had said that he had committed a crime of hanging around this this house that was under construction but it's not illegal to walk across the construction site so they had pursued him you know blocked him off with the truck and then and then shot him so the prosecutor said and then they tried to claim they made it, making a citizen's arrest and they're acting in self-defense. And, and you know, you, the prosecutor said, you don't run, chase after someone and you don't start it and then say that you're acting in self-defense. So the jury came out with correct verdicts in both of those cases. 
Oh, well, but I I thought it was a little. Um, I mean, the problem. One of the problems was, uh, in my opinion, that there was part of the video. I mean, the key part. Um, you know, the end, the shooting was um, obfuscated. You couldn't see that part in the in any of the videos. You and mean so, are you talking about the Arbery now or 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 Rittenhouse? Yeah. Arbery, Arbery, Arbery. Yeah. So if we look at Arbery, you know, they were pursuing him, you know, to make a citizen's arrest when he had not committed a crime. If someone had put up a no trespassing private property sign on that construction site, then you could argue that he committed a crime. But if you don't put up a sign that says no trespassing, it's not illegal to walk across someone's yard. Well, yes, but I mean, I, but you know, there was a whole history of uh, um, people. Um, you know that there were thefts and so on, and uh, well, the, the only the only theft was was that Travis McMichael left a gun in his unlocked truck, right in the driveway. You know that was the only theft. They they what the buzz was about how they had seen this guy running or walking through this construction site and whatnot, and they decided that he shouldn't be doing that but i mean that was really up to the property owner to post a right. sign that said no well, trespassing that's true i mean yes you know they really were wrong and certainly it was racist um i just thought that i just thought that it was that the that the ver the um a sentence was a bit too harsh especially for um was it george uh for the father because he had been a policeman for like 30 some odd years and um, he was retired, or well, no, he was still working at like a desk job, but he had had a, a stroke, I think. Um, and I just, like he, you know, he, yes, he drove the truck, but he didn't shoot Arbery. I, I right. kind of thought that he, and, and especially, and then the other guy um, who just followed, he didn't really do anything. I thought that they kind of painted all three of them with the same brush and the father and the guy who followed, uh, I didn't think deserved as harsh a verdict. Well, you know, the guy that, that was, so it was Gregory and Travis McMichael. Um, and I forgot the name of the third guy, but the third guy, the weird thing about this case is that he was following, you know, he was sort of on the same page in terms of, you know, we got to stop this guy who's been running through our neighborhood. But he was following and he was, he was the one making the cell phone video. And some lawyer, one of the attorneys that he consulted with had this brilliant idea that it would yes. be a good idea to release the video, which is the dumbest. And that guy yes. convicted. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. I know. They should sue him. The yeah. lawyer. <laughs> well, he, well, his quote was, well, I, I thought it'd be a good idea to show show people that they weren't just a couple of rednecks with the Confederate flag driving around in their truck. And in fact, I think they even had a like a little Confederate flag decal somewhere on the back of the truck. And and it didn't, you know, that that was probably the worst judgment that I've seen in, in, in a long time to think that that was a good idea to release that video. Well, except for the fact, like what I was saying about that, it's missing a key part there. But I guess, you know, what there was. Um, was well, I think they, had, they had enough is that they, they had enough showing them, you know, pursuing them with this truck and then blocking them off. And then yeah. Travis sort of goes around to the other side. And at that point, it didn't matter that that if if um Ahmad Arbery was grabbing for the gun or whatever. I mean, he was that the Travis and the McMichaels were the aggressors at that point. 
So whatever happened after that is, you know. Yes, but if if um, but the the defense was um that it was self defense. Like if you could see show Armad uh grabbing the gun, you know that would have looked more like it was self defense. I guess that uh, that's what maybe the lawyer was thinking. Well, but- I think that I think that you know the prosecutor said that it's not self defense if you started it. And uh-huh. so that's what that's the point that the jury uh-huh. came home with mm-hmm. is that 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 the McMichaels, no matter how you want to interpret the video, they were the aggressors, you know, initially. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so by the time that Travis got around to the other side of the truck and you can't see, you know, I assume that that um, Ahmad Arbery, you know, if someone was pointing the guy at him, I mean, you know, he doesn't know who these people are, right? I mean, they're not identified as the police or anything. So they mm-hmm. could be just people out to kill him just because he's running through the yes, neighborhood. Right, right. Yes, it was very unfortunate all the way around. Well, we only have like a little less than three minutes left. So what would you like? Um, how would you like to end it? What would you, what, what key message do you want people to get from this? Like how to, in terms of how justice can be better from here on? I think that, you know, a couple of points, if, if for people that most of the, you know, the reviews we've gotten have been from true crime fans. So the, the consensus is if you like true crime, this is a this is a good book to read at Justice in the Age of Judgment from Amanda Knox, the Kyle Rittenhouse in the Battle for Due Process in the Digital Age, because we, we, we're not just talking about one case like the O.J. Simpson case or one case like, um, you know, uh, Susan Cox Powell, but we're we're covering about. 12 and and then we also have kind of a unifying theme in terms of we're looking at the effects of social media and how people make make judgments and have confirmation bias on the outcomes of cases plus it's uh, kind of an insider's view from the standpoint of my sister who you know she represented Amanda Knox and the Susan Cox Powell family and the family of Rebecca Zahau um, and then she was covering like you uh, as a reporter um, OJ Simpson and, and Michael Jackson and um, so I think it's I think people, you know, will find it interesting. You know, one other point is that, you know, that Michael Jackson is not the only case like that. Another case that we talk about is the case of Mary Kay Letourneau. I don't know if you remember her. Yes. She was yeah. a teacher that had um, a sexual relationship with her 12 year old student. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that was another one. It was sort of, you know, uh, you know, I look like. um you know, Anne's, my sister's chapter heading is nothing could keep them apart. But my take on the thing is sort of as a psychiatrist, well, you know, that's illegal and there's illegal for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then they got married and they had kids, so it was true love. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So so Anne actually sort of became friends with Mary Kay. And I, actually this weekend I was um, up at uh, the place of uh, Greg Olson, who's the number one times bestseller you just wrote. If you tell, and he wrote uh, he wrote a book about um, that one called "If Loving You Is Wrong." So he's a true crime author, and yes. uh, we we were there in Olala, Washington, where he lives, but and did the book signing. But you know, we're, and, we're, yeah. we're kind of coming to our end here. Okay, I interrupt you because I can talk about these things with you forever. In fact, the Rebecca Zhao case, I wanted to ask about that because I definitely believe that that was not suicide. Um, right. Yeah. That's- right. That's what. That's what the yes. we thought too. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much, Doctor Doug Bremner, for being on and for writing this book. 
And um, it certainly will, I hope, uh, give people pause in terms of not just jumping to conclusions when they hear about cases, you know, as to whether someone is guilty or innocent. Um, it, that's what courts are for. <laughs> right. Otherwise, they wouldn't need lawyers and they wouldn't need forensic psychiatrists. So we'd be out of business. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.